Mark 14, 32-42 And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We're working uh, our way now into the last hours of Jesus' life. In the last hours of Jesus' life, last week, we saw Jesus having, uh, sitting down to have an intimate meal with his sort of closest friends. Uh, the, the Last Supper, that, that, that famous painting, right? He, he sat down with his disciples to enjoy his last meal with them. And, and meanwhile, as we've seen in the text, meanwhile, while Jesus is, is in Jerusalem, while he's spending his, his, his last moments with his disciples, with his friends, uh, there's been some kind of dark and, and shady plotting going around behind the scenes, right? Judas has been making deals with the Pharisees and the scribes to, to betray and arrest Jesus. And so uh, in the story so far, we've seen Jesus and his disciples on center stage, but away from center stage, uh, Lurking in the shadows are the scribes and the Pharisees, these uh, sort of uh, powerful religious elites. And Jesus wasn't a, th- a threat to their establishment. And so they're plotting to, to, to kill him, to arrest him. And as Judas uh, makes a deal with them, we, we find out that Jesus is really more worth more to them dead than, than alive. And so we've been... We've been walking through seeing this, this, this kind of dark plotting happening behind the scenes. But in this morning's text, things take a turn. In our passage this morning, the shadows on the outskirts try to make their way center stage where Jesus is. Jesus has been with his disciples nearly every hour over the last few years of his life. But at this moment, he'd be betrayed by one of them. He'd be abandoned by the rest of them. He'd be arrested uh, and eventually dragged to the cross. I went over my outline with uh, with Alyssa uh, yesterday, uh, and she's really astute. And she pointed out to me, uh, she's like, man, the outline's kind of (laughs) depressing for this sermon. Uh, And she's right. She's right, because this is sort of the turning point in the text. This is the turning point in the last week of Jesus' life where things get really dark and things get really hard. And so we're going to look at three events, one after the other, in this passage. I want us to walk through each scene, 
but I want us to see the hope of the gospel in the middle of those. And so our, our, our three points we're going to look at this morning are first, how Jesus was abandoned. Secondly, we're going to see Jesus in agony. And lastly, we're going to see Jesus arrested. So first, Jesus abandoned. Remember, Jesus just wrapped up his Passover meal with the disciples. And as we discussed last week, uh, this sort of Passover meal, this Passover feast was this, this age-old festival that the Jews celebrated once a year to commemorate the day that God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And at that last supper, at that last meal that Jesus has with his disciples, Jesus reveals that the whole point of this old traditional meal uh, with lamb as the main course was to point forward to this day when Jesus would serve as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so this is an intimate moment with his disciples. This is a sober moment. And then we pick up the story now in verse 26 of Mark 14. I want you to read it with me. In verse 26, it says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, really quick here. This was a customary thing to do during the Passover feast, to, to sing what was called the Hallel Psalms. There's a, there's a group of psalms in the book of Psalms that at the end of the Passover feast, you would, you would sing these, these hymns, these psalms, a sort of a, a sacred time of singing together. And says that then they head to the Mount of Olives, which is really where the shadow descends on the story in the next few verses. And in verse 27, it says that Jesus at this morning, at this moment, he said to them, he said to his disciples, you will all fall away. You will all fall away, which is his way of saying, you're about to abandon me. Every single one of you, all his disciples that he just shared this meal with, Jesus prophesies and he says, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You see, Jesus is, is sort of shaking things up with his disciples here. These are his closest friends. These are his most devoted followers. The only ones he invited up to that room with him to enjoy the Last Supper, the Passover feast. And he already revealed that one of them would betray him. But now he tells them, not only will one of you betray me, but, but the rest of you, all of you, the rest of you will fall away. The rest of you will abandon me. In his last hours, when Jesus would need them the most, he says, you will abandon me. And Jesus grounds his prediction in verse 27 in the Old Testament scriptures. He quotes Zechariah when he says, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's a prophecy in Zechariah where God is saying that he will strike the shepherd and the shepherd's sheep will scatter. Who's the shepherd? Jesus. Jesus is the shepherd. And who are the sheep? These disciples. These disciples are, are, are like his, his, his sheep. He's been shepherding his little flock for the last few years. From the time that he handpicked them back in Galilee, when we started the Gospel of Mark, up until this point, these men had been with him. 
They've been traveling with him. He's been teaching them. He's been working with them. He's been showing them the ropes of the kingdom of God. And now he, their shepherd, Jesus says, will be struck down. He'll be attacked. And when that happens, Jesus says, just like the Old Testament prophecies tell us, he says, you guys are going to scatter. You guys will all fall away. God the Father will strike his son, the good shepherd, and the rest of his followers, the flock, will, will scatter away. And this is another reminder for us that Jesus' arrest, his, his suffering, his betrayal, is really just all part of God's sovereign plan to save sinners like you and me. Like this is part of his sovereign plan. This isn't. This isn't. This isn't. A, he, he, this doesn't surprise him. This doesn't surprise Jesus. He says, just like it says in the Old Testament, just like it was promised, I'll get struck down and you will scatter away. But it doesn't stay hopeless. Jesus says in verse twenty-eight. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You see, Jesus assures them that after his death, he'll rise and he'll meet them in Galilee where it all started. And he says, you know, uh, I want you to see how, how, how they respond to this now. In verse 29, Peter says to him, even though they will all fall away, speaking about the other disciples, he says, even though they're going to fall away, he's like, I'm not. I will not. Verse 30, and Jesus said to him, he said to Peter, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. His way of saying, over my dead body will that happen. And they all said the same. You see, the crazy thing here is that the disciples were so certain that they would always have Jesus' back, that they would never abandon him, that they would never scatter or fall away. Peter digs his heels in and he says, look, the others might fall away, but, but I won't. And Jesus says, no, you will. You will fall away. This is going down tonight. And before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter and the rest, they, 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 the rest of them join him. And they say like, yeah, God, Jesus, no way that's going to happen. No way. They can't imagine leaving this man that they love so much behind. This man that they've been following. The man that they've devoted themselves to for the last few years. They can't imagine following, falling behind. How many of us who are followers of Jesus find ourselves really kind of sane and doing the same thing? Like how many of us in this room who are followers of Jesus find ourselves doing the same thing where we tell Jesus, I'll never fail you. I'll always have your back. I mean, Peter said that. He was the best of the disciples. He's always listed with the disciples first. He would be their leader after Jesus leaves, in a sense, to heaven. He was the best of all the disciples, and even he failed. Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. I think that some of us tend to, to read the account where Peter denies Jesus, like three times, that classic account of his denial. And we tend to read that and sort of look at him in shame, thinking like, man, if only he could see the cross and resurrection that was about to happen, then he wouldn't deny Jesus. He would have a clearer understanding. 
if, if he just listened to what Jesus said before, you know, that, 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 then, and he knew that the cross and resurrection was around the corner, then he wouldn't deny Jesus the way that he did three times. You see, but you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, like you and I, we live on this side of the cross and resurrection. We know that it happened. We believe that it happened. We look back to it happening. But how often do we abandon our allegiance to him when the pressure is on? When the coworker in the office is bad-mouthing Christianity or people of faith and you either join in or you like avoid the conversation because you don't want to be labeled as like a Bible-thumping wingnut, right? When you know you shouldn't engage in something or, or, or you, know, you know that this should be your last drink, but you're, you're afraid that others will see you as a prude that can't party, and so you don't partake, you don't indulge. Or it's when you cave into the cultural pressure to abandon truths that are taught in Scripture that you know to be good and true because they're in God's Word, but culture says, no, that belief, that way of thinking is antiquated, that's old school, that's, that's old dogma, and you need to update your Bible to fit with the times. And so you treat the word of God as a story or suggestions rather than God's authority in your life. You see, we do the same thing. When the pressure is on, we end up doing the same thing. The good news, though, for us, is that even though we fail Jesus all the time, he never fails us. Even when the pressure is on, he never abandons the will of the Father, which includes going to the cross in love for us. So I want you to read about, about Jesus doing that for us. And, and, and this is going to be our second point. We're going to see Jesus praying in agony. Jesus praying in agony, which begins in verse 32, when it says, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, sit here while I pray. Um, now, he, he takes them, really quick, the, the, this garden called Gethsemane, which Gethsemane literally means the oil press, right? You see, at some point in time where this garden was, this place was, was, was where oil would get pressed where, uh, under intense pressure, and then the oil would get gathered into jars. But this night, Jesus is the one experiencing agonizing pressure. So Jesus takes them to this place called the oil press, called Gethsemane, this garden. And he took with him Peter and James and John, it says in verse 33, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and walk. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John further into the garden. He takes all his disciples to this area, but then he takes his, his top three, Peter, James, and John. He takes them into the garden. And he tells them to stand on guard, to stand watch. And that word there in the original Greek there means to, to stay alert, to stay awake. It's like night watch in the military. Right, or you've seen this in movies where the guys, like at night, they 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 patrol back and forth, stand your post, be vigilant, observe everything that takes place within within sight or hearing. Jesus wants them to be vigilant in that. Why? Because for Jesus, this is the greatest time of his need, and he wants them to stand on guard. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be betrayed. And the reason that he wants them to stand on guard is really less about them stopping it from happening. Because, I mean, when, when, when Judas comes, John tells us, he comes with about 600 men with him, right? 
I mean, if it was about stopping them, he'd probably take more than three dudes with him, right? You see, he wants them to stand guard because it's less about stopping it from happening, but more about he wants to prepare them on what it means to be alert, what it means to be on watch, what it means to engage in spiritual warfare. And then the next verses, he says, uh, I want you to picture uh, in the next words that he says, just how heart-wrenching this scene is for Jesus. Read verse 35 with me. It says, going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. In other words, he prayed that if it's possible, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to have to suffer this. Verse 36, it says, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Now what's happening here is when he refers to God the Father as as Abba, that's a term of endearment. That's a term of endearment, like when a little child calls their father daddy, right? Now, in our culture today, like, if I called my dad daddy, like, that'd be weird, right? Uh, but back then, uh, that, was, that was something like the, 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 the terms of affection, the intimate affection and connection that you had with somebody who, who mentored you, who, who walked you through life, is, is a title, an affectionate title that stuck with them throughout life. And so uh, imagine with it like, like when, when uh, uh, like if you're a little kid and you refer, you're supposed to refer to your teachers as teacher, right? Like in their culture, even when you graduate high school, like if you're 50 years old and you run into your teacher, you would still refer to them as teacher. It was a form of respect, but also a, a word of, of endearment. And Jesus is referring to God the Father as Abba. Father, and so you get a sense of their intimate relationship and connection. And this is significant to consider because all of his life, all of Jesus' life, he's endured an amazing relationship with God the Father. Before this moment, whenever he turned to the Father in, in heaven, to his Father in heaven, whenever he would turn to the Father in prayer, like heaven would just flood into his life. You see, before this moment, whenever Jesus turned to God the Father in prayer, the kingdom of heaven would flood into his life and ministry. But here, in this garden, here in Gethsemane, the place of the oil press, he turns to God the Father. And rather than heaven flooding into his life, all hell bubbles up. Jesus is about to metaphorically drink from the cup of God's wrath. His agony, his anxiety that he's experiencing is in relation to this cup. He says right there in verse 36, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. Now, what does he mean by that? What is this idea of the cup? Like, I want you to picture this sort of mental image, all right? Jesus is sitting at a metaphorical table. And there's this metaphorical cup that's filled to the brim with the wrath of God. This cup is filled to the brim with the wrath of God against all sin. And he's about to drink it. 
He's about to drink it. Now, now, now some of us, it's like we don't, we don't like the idea of, of, um, of, of God's wrath, right? It's like, no, like, why, why can't we go back to preaching about the love of God, right? Like, I want to hear about the love of God, about hope in, in Jesus. But I want you to consider that if you truly love something, if you truly love something, if you truly care about something, and you're willing to fight for it, right? You're willing to defend it. I mean, if someone comes after like your family or like your loved ones, like you want to go like all taken on them, right? Like you, you want to defend your family. You want to defend your loved ones. You want, you want to go after them, after, after the enemy. You see... God is the source of all holiness. He's the source of all that is true, good, and beautiful in the world. And so for God to defend his own majesty and his own holiness is a good thing, right? And that's, that's hard for us to, 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 to really understand because it's like if, if, if I'm defending like my own, my own reputation and if I go so far to defend like my own holiness and my own greatness, then you'd probably call me a narcissist, right? But the tables, I mean, it's an entirely different thing though for God to defend his holiness. It's an entirely different thing for God to defend his nature because he's other than us. He's God, right? Like if I'm trying to defend like my own greatness, right? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to prove to you and defend to you that, that, I'm, that I'm great and that I'm awesome. Like God doesn't have to do that because he just is. He is the source of all that is true. The source of all that is good. The source of all that is beautiful. And so to not defend that, to not defend his holiness would be an offense to all creatures. It would not be a good thing. And so there's this metaphorical cup in front of Jesus filled to to the brim with the wrath of God that's set against all sin. And he's about to drink it. And this metaphor is littered all throughout the Old Testament. Like when, when Jesus prays this, anyone who's listening would have known what he's talking about. Like in Ezekiel 23, he speaks about the cup of horror and desolation against evil. Isaiah 51 talks about the cup of God's wrath. It just straight up cause of that. In Jeremiah 25, it speaks of the cup of the wine of wrath. It's this picture that the Bible gives us that every time you sin, every time a sinner sins, it's a drop added to this cup. Every time you fall short of God's glory, it's a drop in this cup. Every person, every elect sinner, all their sins are drops in this cup. And the idea here is that this cup of God's wrath that should be poured out on us is on the table, this metaphorical table in front of Jesus. And he's going to drink from it. He's going to drink every drop of it so that we don't have to. 
so that we don't have to even taste it. He's going to absorb the just punishment of God against sin so that we don't have to. And at that moment, at this moment, he's beginning to feel it. He's beginning to taste it. He's getting a sense of the weightiness of this event. And that's why there's tears in his eyes. That's why he falls on his face. That's why he pleads with the Father and says, is there any other option for their salvation? He's like, I love these people. I love my sheep. I love the elect that you've given me. Is there any other way for them to be saved than for me to drink from this cup? Can you remove it from me? From this table. Jesus knows what he's about to go through. He knows what's about to take place. And so he's trembling. He's on his face. In verse 34, the way he, it, he describes it is that he says, My soul is sorrowful even to death. Which in the original language gives us this, this, this sense, this word of uh, the worst emo- emotional pain you could ever imagine. His grief feels like death. And so he collapses. He cries out. He prays so earnestly that he starts to sweat drops of of blood. doesn't say that in Mark, but it does tell us of this account in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus starts sweating drops of blood. And that's a real medical condition. A real medical condition where when your, your body is in so much anguish and so much stress and pressure that your, your blood vessels around your sweat glands, uh, I don't know where your sweat glands are, but for some reason I just want to go right here, right? <laughs> so, uh, but I, it's like when the blood vessels around your sweat glands, uh, when you're in such anguish, they, they start to dilate to the point where some of them start to rupture and explode. And then the blood gets into your sweat glands. And if you're sweating so much, you start to bleed out in your sweat. It's a real medical condition. And Jesus is experiencing that. He is in agony. Now, throughout, throughout church history, like some, some people have been really offended by this idea in this, this passage of Scripture. Some have been offended by this passage of Scripture because they claim, you know, like this, the, the way that this is written, it kind of makes Jesus appear too weak to really be the Son of God, right? Like, look at him suffering his agony. It, it kind of makes Jesus seem like too weak to be God in the flesh. But when, when, when our mind goes there, really what we're having is a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. You see, Jesus isn't supposed to be some, like, super, super human wearing a, like a, like, he's not like a Superman wearing a human disguise like a Clark Kent or something, right? Like, that's not who Jesus is. Like, I, I wish we had time to sort of dive into, like, deep theology on this. But what I need you to get here and really sit with is that, yes, Jesus was fully God. But he's also fully human. In the full sense of what it means to be human, he was human in every way. He was formed in a woman's womb. He was born as a baby. He attended school. He attended the synagogue. He learned. He worked. He sweat. He ate. He drank. He got tired. He cried. You see, the doctrine of Jesus' humanity is essential to our understanding of who he is. 
You see, if he wasn't fully human, if Jesus wasn't human, then he couldn't live in our place. He couldn't fully live for us in the areas that we fail. And therefore, he wouldn't be able to die for us in our place to atone for our sins. You see, Jesus didn't go to the cross as a superhuman. He went to the cross as the truest human. Does that make sense? And as somebody who was fully human, he experienced the anxiety of suffering, the depression of this moment. You want to know the practical application of this doctrine is for, for us, like in this text? It should comfort you in your own sadness, in your own depression, in your own agony, because you know that Jesus can sit with you and suffer. He's not unaware of what it means to suffer as a human. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. He says, let it never be forgotten that the subject of the sorrows of the Savior has proved to be more efficacious for comfort to mourners than any other theme in the compass of revelation or out of it. And this is kind of a controversial statement he says next. He says, even the glories of Christ afford no such consolation to afflicted spirits as the sufferings of Christ. Even the glories of Christ afford no such consolation to afflicted spirits as the sufferings of Christ. Now what he's not saying is that the glories of Christ don't matter to us when we're suffering. But what he is saying is that the fact that Jesus was afflicted himself, the fact that he suffered himself, that's where we can find consolation in our own afflictions. That's where we can find a consolation in our own sufferings. He could really understand what it means to suffer as a human. Uh, when, uh, right before my son Haddon was born, uh, like a little, about two and two and a half years ago, um, my wife, uh, right before he was born, my wife was, uh, she was pregnant, and I mean, obviously she was pregnant, um, <laughs> but uh, there was this moment where, like, over the course of a few days, she, like, constantly thought that she was in labor, right? And there was a moment when, like, labor actually started, and we, we started... Uh, 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 but like her, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the process, but like when labor starts, you got to wait till like your con contractions are, are a certain time apart from each other. And so, uh, uh, she, uh, uh, so she's, she starts, uh, she's in labor. The contractions are, are, are getting closer and closer and they're more painful. And so, uh, we, we, we make it to the hospital uh, and they check out the situation. You're like, oh, yeah, you're in labor, but, like, you're not ready to be here yet. Like, we need to go home and, 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 and walk and, and all this, you know, like, try, 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 and, try and wait this out more. Uh, come back maybe in a few hours when it, when it starts to feel like this. And so we did that, like, back and forth uh, over the course of what it, thought it felt like a couple days, right? And so um, there was one night where we really stayed up all night because Alyssa was like, I think that this is the moment. We're going to have to go back to the hospital. We're going to have to go back here. I think this is the moment. And then the contractions, you know, all of a sudden start to space themselves out again. And it's like, okay, so this isn't the moment, right? And so um, finally, there's that one point where she's like, okay, this is it. I feel like I'm in labor. And so I'm uh, not, not my brightest moment. 
uh, I'm like annoyed at this time. I'm like, okay, like, are, are we really in labor, <laughs> right? I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And so we, 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 uh, we, we, we drive to uh, the hospital, and, uh, and I'm uh, – uh, and Alyssa's in pain. She's in labor. And they tell us, you know, they're not ready to take us, and so they want us to go back home right? And come back again in a little bit. And I make this comment. I'm like, man, this is going to be a painful night. And Alyssa goes, <laughs> Alyssa goes, yeah, more so for me than for you, though. <laughs> and then I go, yeah, well, we've both been up all night. <laughs> I was not thinking clearly in that moment. Not my brightest moment. And then Alyssa just looks at me with, like, glare in her eyes. And I'm like, what? And she's like, I'm in labor, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, like, like, that's why we're doing this. <laughs> and the truth is, like, in that moment, like, I could not truly understand, like, what my wife was going through and what she was suffering because I, I don't know what it's like to be pregnant. I don't know what it's like to be in labor. And the good news for us is that Jesus knows, I mean, not what it means to be pregnant, but he knows what it's like to sit in suffering. He knows what it's like to, to deal with, with pressure and depression and anxiety, to sit and pray in agony and say, God, would you take this from me? And to have it seem like God's not listening. Jesus knows what it's like to sit in that, that place. And so the question of why does, like, there's this question that we ask ourselves, like, why does Jesus allow suffering? Why does God allow suffering? And, and that's a question that we've addressed here and, and I think, you know, meaningful biblical ways, like over, uh, over the months that we've, we've been around. But there's also this question of why did Jesus have to suffer? Why did Jesus have to suffer? Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He experienced the depths of our sorrow and pain just so that we could step into glory with him one day. And so there's Jesus praying in the garden. The, the cup of God's wrath is in front of him. He's dreading it so much. And he says, Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way? He, he knew, Jesus knew and felt the intensity of the cross in front of him, right around the corner. And yet he's doing this for us. That's why he pleads. He says, I want you to, I want you to see how he finishes his prayer in verse 36. He says, Lord, if there's any way, can you remove this cup from me? But then he says, yet not what I will, but you will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In just nine words, Jesus expressed humble faith and submission to the Father. That's just, just glorious. Jesus is ultimately saying, he says, God, not my will be done, but yours. But yours. You see, often what happens when we're in suffering, when we're in agony praying to God to take it from us, is that God actually uses that prayer to strengthen us through it. 
And that's what happens by the end of Jesus' prayers. He says, he starts off by saying, take this from me. Is there any other way? And he ends his prayer with, yet not what I will, but what you will. You know what's heartbreaking? What's heartbreaking is that while Jesus was agonizing in prayer, his disciples, they fell asleep. They fell asleep on him. The rest of this passage tells us that three times Jesus checks in on them and he catches them sleeping. And he has to wake them up, ask them to stay alert again, and then he runs, returns to his own prayer. And finally, though, on this third time, I want you to read what happens. In verse 41, it says, He, Jesus, came the third time to his disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. In other words, he's saying, like, look, the time is here. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. That leads us into our last point where Jesus is arrested. Jesus is arrested. Read verse 43 with me. It says, immediately at that moment, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12 disciples, one of his closest friends. And with him, Judas came with a crowd, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one that I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And so when he came, when Judas came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and then he kisses Jesus. And verse 44, 6 says, They laid hands on him and seized him. You see, things are getting darker and darker as we get closer to the cross. Things are going to really be all downhill from here until the resurrection. But we see when things started off, Jesus tells them, You're going to abandon me. And then, secondly, he's agonizing in prayer. His disciples fall asleep. And now the betrayer comes and Jesus gets arrested. It just keeps getting darker and darker. And here Judas has found the perfect place to betray Jesus. It's in the dark, outside of the city, in a garden called Gethsemane, away from the crowds that are piling into Jerusalem for the Passover. So no riot will ensue because of all the people that, that just love Jesus and are attracted to him. Judas waited until Jesus was off to the side. In fact, verse 48, uh, Jesus kind of chides Judas and he says, and he says to them in, in, in verse 48, it says, uh, he says, have you come out against, come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to, to capture me? You see, because they're, they're treating him like he's this military revolutionary commander, but he's so much more than that. He's so much more than that. Verse 49 says, day after day, Jesus says, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. He's saying, come on, like, are the swords and, and clubs, are they really necessary? Like, really? But let the scripture be fulfilled because I know that this is the hour. This is the cup. This is the time that I came for. This is the reason for my life, for me to go with you right now, to go to the cross. And then the other shoe drops in verse 50 when it says, and they all... Speaking of the disciples, they all left him and fled. We started off with Jesus saying, 
you will all fall away. You're all going to abandon me. Peter leads the way in saying and denying that, no, none of us, that's not going to happen to, I mean, these guys might, but I'm not going to. And then the rest of the disciples, it says, they started to say the same thing, like, no, Jesus, they might, but I'm not going to. Verse 50, they all left him and fled. Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested and they fled just like he said they would. They failed and fell away just like he said they would. And so if they failed, man, what, what, what hope do they have? If we fail, what hope do we have? You see, where what we see in this passage from verse 26 to 52, is that where Judas and the disciples failed, in every area that they failed, Jesus succeeded. He succeeded. Jesus was the only one that said to the Lord, yet not what I will, but what you will, and actually acted accordingly. You see, some people are like Judas, where you have no real work of God going on in your heart. Like your, your Christian life is just hypocrisy and betrayal, right? Like you, you like to have the appearances of being on Jesus's inner crowd, but when push comes to shove, like you're willing to sell them out. Some people are like that. Most of us, though, are like the other disciples. Most of us are like the other disciples where we're just conflicted in our hearts, where we know what the right thing to do is, but we end up biffing it like in the moment under pressure. Jesus summarizes this internal battle in verse 38. When he tells his disciples after, after they, they fall asleep, he says, you know, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many of you have heard that old adage before? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's where this comes from. You see, the disciples, they were walking in the flesh. Jesus was walking in the spirit. Really quickly, I want you to, to walk through me on how that, that happened. Like first, the disciples were walking in the flesh. They were, they, they were overconfident. They were self-confident. Peter said, you know, early on, he's like, I'm not going to fall away, right? Overconfident, self-confidence. I'm not going to fall away. They might, but I'm not going to fall away. And yet they all fall, fell in their pride. What we see in the passage is for every instance of self-confidence, for every instance of self-pride, Jesus showed true dependence on God. He's quoting scripture. He's saturated in God's promises. He says, may these things happen as the scriptures say. In the disciples, we see them walking in the flesh in their prayerlessness, Right? In their prayerlessness, the disciples were told by Jesus to pray, and they fail three times. This is his inner circle, his inner, inner inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and they prefer sleep over being there for, with, for Jesus. Why is prayer so challenging? Like, have you ever noticed that, like, prayer never wins, right? Like, in your life, prayer never wins. If you're going to choose between Netflix and prayer, you're going to choose Netflix, right? If you're going to choose between sleeping in and prayer, prayer will usually never win. Why? Why does it usually not win in our lives, and why does it usually not win in, why did it not win in the disciples in this moment? It's because we rarely see the true urgency of the moment. 
we rarely see the true urgency of the moment until it's too late. I mean, you think the disciples would have actually stayed awake and prayed if they knew what was just about to happen? If they knew that Judas was going to come in with scribes and Pharisees and like 600 other armed men and take him away, take their rabbi, their teacher away, you think they would have stayed awake maybe a couple more hours? You see, we rarely see the true urgency of a moment until it's too late. That's why Peter, who learned this lesson the hard way, he tells us in 1 Peter 5, he tells us to be watchful, to be always alert. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. Be watchful. What we see in this passage is that with every instance of prayerlessness, Jesus himself was marked by prayer. He said, Lord, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. And he wants his disciples to be marked by prayer too. We also see the disciples walking in the flesh by, by, by just the way they wanted to control the situation, right? Just uh, like what happens, when, when in, in, what happens in our lives when crisis hits? We get tense and we try and control the situation, right? We try to take matters in our own, in our own hands. We panic, take matters into our own hands. We need to do something. Right? That's what happened to these disciples. In verse 47, it says that when the, these guys came, like one of them started wielding around a sword and ended up cutting someone's ear off. Right? And it, it, a panicking and a control over the situation. But what we see in this passage is that Jesus, rather than trying to control the situation, surrenders it in obedience. In the end, what is a spirit-empowered life? What does it mean to, 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 not, uh, to not be walking the flesh, but the spirit? What does it mean when, when Jesus says that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak? He's encouraging us to walk in the spirit. What, what, is it, what, is, what do you think of when you hear that, that phrase, the spirit-filled life? Like, some of us, when we hear that phrase, spirit-filled life, Spirit-empowered life, we think of some sort of like uh, Im impressive display of, of faith, right? We think of something loud. We think of something impressive and powerful. And in some instances, yeah, it can be that. But the spirit-empowered life, according to the Bible, is usually not all that glamorous. But it's about a consistency in faith. A consistence in prayer. It's about a life marked primarily by obedience to the will of God. You see, many of us want, want, want to experience what we would consider like a spirit-filled life or a spirit-empowered life. The scriptures tell us that usually what that looks like is an unglamorous, just faithful life marked by obedience according to the scriptures. Just walking daily with Jesus. We all want the spiritual life, but the fleshly life gets in the way. You know, so, so what hope is there? What, 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 why was this passage given? Like, what hope is there for us when we keep walking in the flesh and not in the spirit? This passage was given to us to show us what Jesus has done so that we can run after him, so that we can keep repenting and returning to and running after Christ. You see, Jesus is the only one 
the only human in all of history who perfectly obeyed and was completely isolated from God. Jesus is the only one who perfectly obeyed and was completely isolated from God the Father. The wrath of God falls on him alone and not on us. He had to endure the cross to take our place. He had to succeed where we have all failed. Even for the disciples in this story, the cross is where all of their failures were wiped away. You know what the spirit-filled life versus the fleshly life is all about? It's less about having to do what Jesus did, and it's more about looking at what he's done and having that change you, having that impact you and transform you. There, there, when Jesus drinks the cup on your behalf, there is where we find grace. There you find power. There you're given the spirit in you. There you find the love of God for you. Jonathan Edwards, he puts it like this. He says, Christ, Christ of his own act and choice endured sufferings that were so great that he, that Jesus should have an extraordinary sense of how great these sufferings were to be before he endured them. Just the fact that he had a sense of how great these sufferings would be before he endured them, this was given in his agony. In other words, the reason that we see Jesus so agonized is because he understood the greatness of the suffering that we deserve, but that he would drink. Jesus, our maker, our creator, took on human flesh in a woman's womb just so that flesh could be torn apart off his back for you and for me, for sinners like us. The love of God for, G- for you in Jesus' atoning death on the cross is the love that you've been searching for your whole life. It's the love that we truly all need. In a moment, we're going we're gonna to take uh, the communion meal. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And as, as followers of Jesus, this is an opportunity for you to experience the spiritual presence of Jesus for you. His, his body broken, his blood spilled, and his agony realized. See, God's wrath is filling a cup with your name on it because of your sin. And instead of you having to drink from your cup, your cup was spilt into Jesus's so that he could receive it for you. And in this good news, in the atoning work of Jesus, in this gospel, we're nourished. We're nourished with a willing spirit and with amazing grace. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.